The Missouri, she's a mighty river. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one small slice of American writing and I pick books that are published in the, the wonderful Library of America uh, series. And we had just finished up with An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser. And then I took a little bit of a break from, from recording. I actually had, had recorded that whole series on Dreiser in, in pretty much a week or so or a week and a half. And then I, then I had to move to China. So uh, it was a couple weeks getting settled here and getting uh, you know, used to my new job and things like that. So, but while I was doing that, I, I was reading a little bit of uh, you know, going back to the works of Herman Melville. This is actually where this, this podcast began. Uh, my very first series was the very first volume published by the Library of America, which was Melville's first three novels, Typey, Omu, and Marty. And that, that's a really good series. And if you're just joining this podcast, you know, maybe go back and listen to those first episodes where you know, it was, the style was a little bit different. The episodes were a little bit shorter. They were a little bit more yeah. disciplined, I suppose. Um, but uh, a lot of great themes there. And, and some of those themes are certainly going to carry off over into this series. Um, now, these th this, this volume collects three novels that Melville wrote between 1849 and, and 1851. And um, these three are Redburn, His First Voyage, White Jacket, or The World in a Man of War, and Moby Dick, or The Whale. And, and what we really got here, of course, we have Moby Dick, and that's in a class by itself, you know, the, the great American novel, right? Um, one of the depending on who you talk to, you know, it might, you might get different points of view, but many hold that up as the greatest American novel ever, ever written. And that's, that's not a position I, I really fundamentally disagree with. In fact, my, my old blogger name used to be Tash Quidag, which was, I got from Moby Dick. It was Tashkigo, Quiquig, and, and Dagu. And I just kind of put, um, compressed the names in, into one. So I, I certainly think it's, it's, the greatest is not maybe one of the greatest American novels. So that's in its class by itself, but you can still kind of group these these three novels together. The first one, Redburn, is in a sense they're all biographical because Melville did spend time on these three types of ships in his career, and, and there's some kind of realism to the fact he's going back to that. Uh, in some sense, he was returning to the re to realism after Marty because Marty wasn't very well received because of his kind of you know, his venturing into fantasy and allegory and, and it's all kind of weird. And I, I like Marty, but most people don't share that opinion. And certainly the readers at the time didn't. And, and so he went back to the novels that made him famous, which were more like personal memoir style works. And so Redburn is about a merchant voyage between New York and Liverpool, a short voyage. Just, you know, I think it's like a month to Liverpool from New York at the time maybe six weeks then he spends like a month or so in liverpool takes a trip to london um, comes back to liverpool for the return voyage and and that's all it's a very simple novel it's very much framed as a as a fish out of water story and, and that's sort of how i'm going to approach it but there's a lot of interesting themes and 
commentary, very much like you have in Marty and Omer, where Melville will, t- will tell this adventure story and then kind of do an aside where he talks about empire or talks about the conditions of sailors. Here it's more about like the actual what life is like for sailors in ports and, and, and kind of their difficulties. And you actually get a feeling you're kind of in this, you're reading something that could have been written by a reformer, right? Someone who's trying to expose the corruptions and, and horrible conditions of sailors on, on American ships. But anyways, that's that's what the story of Redburn, and this is actually something Melville did. He did this kind of voyage. It's, I think his first vo- his actual first voyage was very similar to this one. So um, that's followed by White Jacket, which is about life in the U.S. Navy, which Melville spent, I think, a year or so in, in the U.S. Navy. So that was part of his maritime life. It's been a while since I read White Jacket, so it's hard for me to comment too much on it until I look at it again. But... You know, it's it's kind of filling in that. And then with Moby Dick, he goes back to whaling. And of course, his first novels were about whalers. You know, the main character in Taipei and Omu were whalers. But of course, he, he comes at this in new ways and fresh ways and, and with this great ambitious novel. So it's, it's kind of giving us three windows. One way of looking at these novels is it gives us three windows into, into um, American life at the sea in the middle of the 19th century. Now, after this, uh, Melville's writing career is not over. He's not going to really return to sea fiction except for Billy Bubb, which wasn't even published during his lifetime. He would write a few more novels that, like Pierre and The Confidence Man and wrote short stories and things, the Pizarro, Pizarro Tales. These novels and stories, you know, really frame the end of his career. He spent most of his life after, you know, after the mid-1850s working like as a customs agent right so he didn't really take up writing much after that and his his career of writing sea fiction more or less ends with with Moby Dick and he tries other things and it's it's a shame no one really picked up on his greatness because those novels aren't good too and we'll look at those probably next I'm probably follow this up just you know with the rest of Melville's works depending on how I feel I I couldn't bring that many books with me to to China because of the costs and associated and you know i'll be going back to taiwan from time to time ferrying books back and forth but you know i'll, I'll start with the books i have so it's, it's going to be these two volumes of melville most likely unless i find a bookstore that has some library of america books which i'm not so sure will happen so anyways that's where i'm at and that's uh kind of a, a summary of what the series is going to unfold it's going to take me about 13 yeah say 13 or 14 episodes um, but let, let's just start with with Redburn. Now, th- this novel conveniently breaks itself up into like 300-page sections pretty easily. Some novels, it's, it's a little bit more artificial, and it's 100 page at a time. Um, rubric doesn't really work that well for all novels. For this one, it kind of does fit together quite nicely. The first 100 pages really deals with uh, our main character, Redburn, a young man from a merchant family who basically gets a bit bored with his life and decides to go off to sea and to, to, to find that adventure and to kind of begin his life and begin his career. And, and there's a lot, of, a lot about him becoming independent through this. So he decides to go on a sign on to the ship. Uh, he doesn't have much money, though, and he eventually does, you know, go onto the ship to Liverpool. It's a very short voyage. It's a kind of introductory voyage. He signs on as a, as a green boy making very little money. And then much of the first hundred pages of the story are about 
him acculturate himself to life on the ship and the confusions and the conflicts and just the misunderstandings that come from him trying to understand this this life i you know as i was reading this i was watching a lot of orange is the new black and if you watch that tv series like that first season where the main character has to find out her way in prison you know i kept thinking that about that when i was reading this because a lot of it's just about him not knowing the rules of how things work and him kind of fumbling his way through through life and of course this is an experience a lot of people have in any new job or new experience or new country or or, or whatever and we all face this at, at various times so it's a, it's a very something a lot of people can relate to uh, in, in different ways um, but there's a lot of humor in it too and a lot of kind of obvious you, you just see how naive the character is and when you think of the whole course of the novel how he comes back from this relatively short voyage a very very different person much more mature much more independent that th this voyage really did have an effect on on him and, and he, he did grow up a bit over the course of it but a lot of the drama in the early part of the tale is about him just kind of fumbling his way through through new through new york and through you know getting on the ship and how he deals with different people there are some interesting class issues here too um redburn fakes his how rich he is he presents himself, in order to get the job, he presents himself as a, a rich, a, a scion of a, of a very rich family. Um, and he, you know, this leads to him getting very low wages and not getting any kind of clothing allowance. And he has to end up pawning things to pay for his basic clothing. So the, there's some class tensions here. And then he does later on try to, you know, become friends with the captain and this fails utterly and embarrasses him and he realizes that his place really is with the sailors so there is a, a kind of a class a proletarianization proletarianization of our main character as he realizes that the place for him is in the forecastle in the foxhole not not in the cabin's quarters so that's kind of the story of the first hundred pages the second hundred pages deals really with liverpool and what it's like for sailors in Liverpool. And there's a lot of kind of political commentary on on the status of sailors, how they're take, taken advantage of and all that. Then he meets this guy, Harry, who takes him on this kind of side quest to to London. Well, that side quest uh, basically is kind of a bit lame. It's a bit anticlimactic, but he ends up back in Liverpool. And then the third part of the story, the last 100 pages or so, deal with Redburn's return and, and there they're returning with immigrants and so a lot of what's going on in that part of the story has to do with immigration to America and the role of these merchant ships in carrying over um, immigrants and, and there's a lot of interesting things that Melville says about their plight and their fortunes and, and, and all that so we actually kind of have a nice neat image of, of the capitalist system as it was emerging in the 19th century on the one hand, you have the movement of commodities on which, you know, sailors are relied upon for that movement of commodities. And then on the other hand, you have the movement of people and the movement of labor and this the emerging global labor market in which millions of people leave Europe and come to the new world and many leave Asia and come to the new world. So it's part of an emerging global labor market. At the same time, you're having an emerging uh, commodities market right and, and the fact that people by the end do become commodities i think is something that melville is picking at I, I don't know how clearly this is in his mind but we definitely can look back at this novel now and see that we kind of have a a snapshot of the capitalist world system well we don't have his production of course 
I guess that side quest in London maybe gives us a glimpse, but you know, to be fair, he doesn't really talk about factories at any point. But it's we do have, uh, at least from the perspective of the movement of goods and the movement of people, we have an image of, of the, emer- the nature of the emerging capitalist world market based on kind of one big world in which people just float around and goods float around. And the importance of sailors to making all that work is something that is kind of overtly argued by, by Melville at various times in, in the story. So it's all very, it's a nice package. And like, what was it like for sailors? Or what was that experience would have been, would have been like for sailors for the first time? Uh, there's a lot of just good historical tidbits here. And certainly Melville presents it as an autobiography. You know, in, in many ways, it is very autobiographical. I think, as with Typey, a lot of the events in Redburn happened to him. I, I haven't researched this voyage of, of Melville's to know how much was a one-for-one parallel. Did people like Jackson or Harry, were these actual people that he met? I would b- believe it based on what we, we've seen in Omu and in Typey. So anyways, that's that's my introduction. Let me let me say a little bit about uh, the first the first hundred pages of what goes on. It, it's it's a lot of short chapters, so I don't know if I'll go through chapter by chapter. Yeah, I think we're looking at the first 21, 22 chapters or so. Um, so I'm, I don't think I'll go through chapter by chapter, but I will kind of talk through the, some of the main things we see in this in this novel. Now, right away, we're we're basically told that this is a story of disillusionment and kind of uh, a betrayal of innocence or an end of innocence. I think there's a couple of motifs early on. One is kind of that the loss of innocence, and the other is is kind of the fish out of water story. And they they go, they go together certainly. Redburn, and his full name is William Burrow Redburn, so he has this kind of aristocratic name, which certainly doesn't really help him that much in his his time at sea as a lowly sailor with these working class people. Uh, he's not really of their their class because um, he he's more from a middle the middle class essentially. He doesn't really have much money. But he's not like rich, but you know, there is there's wealth in the family. The thing is his father died, so that that, that kind of there wasn't really much left in the family. So but he got an education, he had some he had the trappings of a middle class life, which I guess contributes to the class tension in the early part of the story as well. But he really was surrounded by stories of the sea, his father's stories of voyages back and forth across the Atlantic. He's the kind of kid who knew all the different types of ships, right? He could say that's a brig, that's a, you know, that's a copper fastened ship or whatever. He really kind of knew the lingo, but he got it through books and he got it through newspa- newspapers. And he would, you know, kind of stare with fascination at the recruitment posters or the recruitment ads and the news about ships coming in and out. So he's, it's, it's a very childish kind of fascination with with the sea that of course I think a lot of kids have maybe now it's space or, or some other place but you know in those days it was the sea and the, the strange world beyond the sea and that is really what's driving him to to step out and to get a job at, at sea and he needs a job right so he really can't find work at, at home that's that's part of the background that leads him to the sea as well but there's a lot why he picks uh, the ocean why he picks an ocean going vessel in particular has a lot to do with what he's been told about the sea in in his past and what he's taught himself about the sea 
Quote, indeed, during my early life, most of my thoughts of the sea were conduct conducted with the land, but with the fine old lands, full of mossy cathedrals and churches and long, narrow, crooked streets without sidewalks and lined with strange houses. And especially I tried hard to think of how such places must look on rainy days and Sunday afternoons, and whether indeed they did have rainy days and Saturdays there, just as we do here, and whether the boys went to school there and studied geography and wore their shirt collars turned out and tied with the black ribbons and whether the pop was allowed them to wear boots instead of shoes. So he, he just starts to dream of the sea more and more, and eventually that's what, what leads him to, to seek out seek out life, seek out a job um, as signing on to a transatlantic merchant ship. So he leaves and he gets, you know, he, you know, he goes down to New York. He actually has some trouble getting to New York because like he didn't even have, a, he didn't buy a ticket or whatever. and he, you know, that's the first of many kind of embarrassments he, he faces in his effort to, to kind of achieve this quest of getting onto his ship, right? It's, it doesn't seem like a hugely difficult quest, but it's just the trouble getting a job, right? And of course, still, anyone who, I guess, moves to a, a big city to tries to find a job and doesn't have enough money and is worried about those kinds of things could empathize, I think, with, with what Redburn is facing here. I guess the best example of him just really not know what's going on is like he didn't even know what a, a pawn shop was. And when he, well, he goes to sign up for, for, for the ship and he basically tells the captain that he's from a rich family and they're kind of sending him off for adventure and to learn his way in the world. And so the captain's like, well, this is great. It's basically like free labor for me. So he first he gives him a very, very low wage, less than he probably could have got if he actually came as a regular working stiff. And he doesn't even get like the clothing for money for clothing, which is something sailors were supposed to get. So he's kind of not only being screwed by low wages, but by the fact that he has to, you know, buy his own sea clothes. And he doesn't really have any money to do that. The only thing only had like two dollars. One was he had to give for the fare or something. He's, um, he might actually be broke at this point. I forgot the details, but and it, enough to say that he really can't afford to 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 buy any clothes. So he then goes to a pawn shop, and he doesn't even know what a pawn shop is. People have to explain it to him, and then he goes to a pawn shop, and the guy guys he's going to sell his pistol. Uh, so it's called a following piece in the novel. That's just basically a, a, I think it's a shotgun used for, for you know, hunting fowl. He had that and he has to pawn it. And the guy's like, I'll give you some, like, I think it's like three bucks or two bucks or something for it. And Redburn's like, no, I'm going to go to the next guy. And he goes to the next guy and the next guy doesn't, you know, doesn't offer him as much. Finally, he goes back to the first guy again and says, okay, I'll take what you offered. And the guy's like, well, I offered that this morning. I'm not offering it now. And so he ends up with like even less than he hoped for. So he eventually does pawn this and most of that money has to go into buying his clothing. So he's essentially broke, but now he has his, his sea clothing. But the way he fumbles through life here, it's, it's rather humorous and, and comical. And I think it has a, but it, it really gives us this feeling of this fish out of water story that he just really doesn't know what he's doing even in the city, much less at sea. And, and that's going to be our overrunning theme. The fact how much he grows up by the end of the story, I think, is it's an important thing to not to downplay as you, as you read this tale. 
So Redburn gets on the ship eventually. He's ready to go. He's got his clothes. He doesn't have traps, though. It's like so someone tells him, like, where are your traps? And he doesn't have them. And then we're reminded that, of course, there's a lot of rats on these ships, and the others usually would carry around these traps to, to help manage that. And it's just another sign of how unprepared he is. He really doesn't know what to expect. And he doesn't have anyone really guiding him either. And it's, it's, it tells us something, I think, about the education of these sailors. And I don't know how much of this is is true but there, you know there weren't you didn't go to school to become a sailor right you you signed on to a ship as a boy and you basically figured it out and of course the crew would teach you what we do know is like certainly the mates and the captain don't do any of that education if there is any kind of training process and, and there is somewhat it, it really comes from the sailors themselves and they help each other out but they do it begrudgingly they don't they're not always kind to to newcomers they often are insulting them and things like that so it's not the the i guess the ideal situation to to learn a new craft um but it seems to work in redsburn's case where he just kind of gets thrown into it and has to to learn the hard way even on things like terminology like at one point one of the officers tells him to tells him to slush the main mass down and He's like, okay, and he doesn't do anything, and the officer's upset, and he says, well, I don't, you know, Redburn says, I don't know what slushing is, and so he has to be told that. But, you know, most, it seems that most of the education actually comes from the crew themselves, you know, kind of modeling it or following it, and, you know, there, you never get a scene where there's like a training montage kind of thing where the, the officer will, will show them how to do it. It's, it's all bottom-up education, it seems to me. Um, but it'd be interesting to see, you know, what historians have said about the way sailors were, were trained, were educated. That's probably true with a lot of professions, right, where, where you had the kind of the guild structure where more experienced craftspeople kind of train the, the, the newcomers, the apprentice system. Ships didn't have that. They had the, the boy seamen, able seamen kind of ranking. But it was still the more experienced people through modeling it, through doing it in front of them, taught the young people how to do it. But it was a, a slow process, and it was kind of a sink or swim process, and that's the feeling we get from it. In fact, Redburn calls, or Melville calls the chapter where all this is taking place, you know, they have like a first day at the sea, called, he is initiated in the business of cleaning out the pig pen and slushing down the top mast. So it's initiation, right? It's, it's like a, almost like a, a baptism in, in, in fire. That is then followed by his first seasickness, that first night, which is described in a lot, a lot of great detail. And, you know, he just feels really miserable after this. And the, the sailors say, well, here, take this. And it's basically a rum he's supposed to drink. And we, we again get this kind of fish out of water picture because Redburn had spent so much of his time earlier in his life you know, in things like temperance societies, and he vowed a pledge. He signed a pledge not to drink and smoke and things like that. He brings tobacco though, so I don't know. He has a little box of tobacco. I don't know why he brought that if he wasn't going to smoke. But in any case, he he signed these pledges not to smoke or drink, and they're all immediately they're abandoned once he gets on ship because of necessity, right? And this is one example of that the, the way you overcame seasickness was by getting a bit drunk, and that helped cure it, and it seemed to work. And it worked for Redburn. And he says, like, if you were at sea, you'll understand. It doesn't, it's not really violating my pledge because I'm doing it out of necessity. And it, it's different than kind of drinking on land. But he, he quickly abandons these. But these um, kind of landlubber mentalities aren't going to work, aren't going to translate very well to the sea. 
Now, chapter chapter eight is a chapter I, I really loved. It's called the Larboard Watch, and this is his again. I think this is still the first day in his first watch, and he, he gets assigned. He, it's kind of like there's this a moment where the officers are like picking teams for the different watches, and of course Redburn gets picked last. It's, it's like a poor guy in high school gym, but he ends up on this Larboard Watch, and he then he gets to talk to sailors for the first time, and he hears the stories, and. You know, it's it's really a wonderful part, I think, of, of these novels, and especially this novel, where we get these tales from these experienced uh, sailors. And this is all, I think, meant to be contrasted with the tales of the sea he had when he was young. And these are very different style of, of, of stories. That are, they, they lack a lot of, I guess, the pompacity of, of, of the stories you kind of get out in books and in stories, and even from his father, who, who was kind of a merchant. And here's what Melville writes about this. Quote, I have seen mention made of things before in books of voyages, but that was only reading about them, just as you read the Arabian Nights, which no one ever believes. For somehow what I read in those wonderful countries, I never used really to believe what I read, but only thought it very strange and a good deal too strange to be altogether true. Though I never thought the men who wrote the book meant to tell lies, but I don't know exactly how to explain what I mean. This much I will say, that I never be believed in Greenland till I saw this Greenlander. And at first, hearing him talk about Greenland only made me more incredulous. For what business had a man from Greenland to be in my company? Was he not at home among the icebergs? And how could he stand a warm summer sun and not be melted away? Besides, instead of icicles, there were earrings hanging from his ears. And he did not wear bearskins and his hands, and kept his hand as a huge myth, things which I cannot help connecting with Greenland and the Greenlanders. But I was telling about my, my being seasick and wanting to retire for the night. This Greenlander, seeing I was ill, volunteered to turn doctor and cure me. End quote. And then, then he goes on to the story about how he gives him this alcohol, this kind of rum to, to cure seasickness. But there's something interesting, like when you read a story on paper, it has a certain effect on you. And maybe there's kind of a, a suspension of disbelief that goes on when you do that. But when you hear a story told by someone, you know, that this happened to me. It's something more real and something more alive. And, and I, you know, thinking back on actually Melville's own literary career, the novels in which he said, like, this stuff happened to me, like in Taipei and in Redburn, uh, Omu, you know, those were the popular novels. And when he started to kind of go off and be more imaginative and start to, to re reach the realms of fantasy and high, you know, high, you know, high imagination, I guess like in Moby Dick and in Marty, his novels aren't nearly so successful. And maybe this is some reason for that. Like, do we, are we, do we appreciate the stories in which the author says, like, I was there, right? You know, or it's kind of like, if you're, even if you're on a campfire or something here in a story and someone tells something that happened to him, it's a little more engaging than just the, you know, the, the kind of the objective third-person storytelling. You know, I had an experience, I think not long ago, where a friend tells me a joke. And he tells the joke, but he starts it out like, well, this happened to me, right? And he, he had me going for a lot longer with the story because he presented it just as like, this happened to me. And then at the end, it's like, ha ha, it's a joke. I, I forget how it went. But, you know, that had he said like this happened to some other person, I probably wouldn't have believed it as much. So there's something more intimate and connected about hearing the story, you know, from the person's mouth and and that made this kind of obscure fantastical place right white on the map right greenland 
you know, something real because he could touch and feel and smell and listen to the voice of someone from that land. Now, there is a degree of hazing, like the sailors do sort of warm to him and, and try to make him part of the forecastle. Of course, every ship is going to have a lot of these green boys, so sailors of more experience would have been used to them being on the ship and how to deal with them. But they're also, you know, a little bit of hazing going on. And, and or what I'm trying to say, well, there's a lot of language concerns that Redburn has. For instance, Redburn basically thinks the sailors are good people. He's not really antagonistic towards them, except a few and from time to time he has some personal conflicts but they seem to flow over him you know he, he as he gets more acculturated to, the, to life on the ship you know but he he doesn't quite get ever get used to their language right they're swearing but he sees beyond their vulgar language to see that they're basically good people and i i think that's a part of him sort of growing up and maturing into the ship and into the culture of the ship because he he never really speaks he doesn't swear, for instance, um, but he understands that the fact that they swear doesn't make them bad people, right? But you can imagine what he heard like in church and at the temperance societies and the anti-smoking league, those organizations he was part of, you know, that all this drinking, smoking, swearing are all kind of grouped together as bad, sinful, evil things, right? The typical antebellum reform era ideology. But you know, Redburn starts to have a more complex and nuanced view of the, these people as he becomes part of their community. And I, I find that all kind of touching. And there are moments in which he kind of moves back and forth and he tries to break free of the forecastle at one moment. But by and large, it's, it's a process of him becoming acculturated to, to life in the forecastle. And it's, you know, it, it's rather well told, I think. Now, despite the forecastle being a bit of a brotherhood and being a community, there are hierarchies and ranks within them, and that's something Redburn, Redburn learns. Of course, there's the, the official ranks, right? The able seamen, the seamen, and the, and the green boys. And it's, you know, at one point, Melville, through the narrator, through, through Redburn here, talks about how that, you know, these don't always make sense. Like sometimes experienced sailors get taken on as, you know, able seamen, or no able seamen get taken on just as normal regular seamen, or sometimes even boys, depending on, you know, wages or the, what the captain needs or whatever. So, you know, it's not really, these are kind of flexible categories, that there's a lot more, there's more of an informal hierarchy. And the kind of the, the strong man on this ship, and this ship's called the Highlander, by the way, it's, it's this man named Jackson. And Melville devotes a whole chapter, and a rather lengthy one, it's, it's almost 10 pages, eh, eight pages, to the character of, of Jackson. Now, much of that chapter is the physical description of Jackson. It's enough to say that he's presented as a, as a total badass. So veterans say there, who's tough, he's thin, he's gritty, just kind of the spitting nails kind of, of classical sailor, sailor archetype. But the fact that he also kind of, there's also this, he uses that authority, I guess, that he comes from his experience and his time on the ship to really dominate the people around him. And so here uh, we have a quote, this is on page 69 of the Library of America version. Quote, they all stood in mortal fear of him and cringed and fawned about him like so many spaniels. They used to rub his back after he was undressed and lying in his bunk. They used to run up the deck to the cookhouse to warm some cold coffee for him. And they used to fill his pipe and give him some chews of tobacco and mend his jackets and trousers. And used to watch a tent nurse him every way. 
and all the time he would sit scowling at them and found fault with what they did. And I noticed that those who did the most for him and cringed the most before him were the very ones he most abused. And while two or three held more aloof, he treated them with little consideration, end quote. That's kind of fascinating that people kind of ingratiate themselves to this informal hierarchy, even though they don't seem to get any tangible benefits from, if anything, they get abuse out of it. And, you know, do people gravitate towards the, these types of hierarchies? You know, I'm not sure. What, what leads people to follow Ahab to, to the ends of the earth? And Moby Dick, I guess we'll, we'll have to talk about that when we get to, when we get to Moby Dick in a, in a few weeks. Now, Redburn himself stays kind of aloof from the politics of that. There seems to be a one clique of, of sailors who are openly hostile to Jackson and actually seem to plot to undermine his authority. Now, all this is happening, apparently, out of sight of the captain. It's kind of like a parallel hierarchy, almost, that you have the formal hierarchy of, of the captains and the mates and all that, and then you got this sideline hierarchy with, with Jackson and, and his entourage. And, you know, Redburn's just kind of a new guy there. He just got there, and he's kind of observing it all. But it's, it's, it's a rather fascinating window into how, how kind of these natural hierarchies form in, in otherwise something that's more cooperative and collective, like the forecastle, right? I guess there's this hope that we want to, we kind of, like, let's look at the ship, and we take over the captain, right? And then we have essentially like a pirate ship, right? A, a more democratic entity right where people make their own rules that's the forecastle right and i guess and i think i'm getting some of this from this historian marcus radiker who wrote on this like the pirate ship was the extension of the culture of the forecastle to the whole ship right because he got rid of the captain you know so you got this kind of cooperative collective sharing environment and certainly that's there but nevertheless you're going to have hierarchies form based on based on kind of metal and, and grit rather than yeah, but the captain is just like money, right, or title or name. There's an interesting moment. It comes in chapter 14 where Redburn be tries to reach out to the captain kind of as an equal almost, or at least to use, because of course everyone sort of thinks he's from a richer background than he is, but he, more importantly, he's got this more imagined background as kind of the scion of a, of a merchant right who so he sees himself as kind of like one of one of the groups so he goes to try to approach captain riga and and talk to him directly rather than through the mates or something and this is like a big no-no this is not what's done on these ships if you have to talk to someone maybe the officer of your of your watch right but you know boy probably should be doing that um too much Quote, uh, I did not even deem it impossible that he would invite me down into the cabin of a pleasurable night to ask me questions concerning my parents and prospects in life, besides obtaining from me some anecdotes touching my great uncle, the illustrious senator, to give me a slate and pencil and teach me problems of navigation, or perhaps engage me in a game of chess. I even thought he might invite me to dinner on a sun sunny Sunday and help me plentifully to the nice cabin fare, as knowing how distasteful the salt beef and pork and hard biscuits on the forecastle must be to a boy like me who had always lived ashore and not at home. And of course, he's, he's, he's an utter failure and embarrassment for him. But he also starts to come to see the captain in new ways. And he sees that, the, you know, he's a little bit vulgar. The clothing he wears is kind of shabby, you know, and he's not impressed by Captain Riga. That's his name, clothing. And at the end of the chapter, actually declaring him that he's not a real gentleman or something. So after he gets rebuffed by him, he's able to then 
kind of retcon it, so he never really thought he was all that great to begin with. Right, but I think this is the moment in which Redburn really is pushed permanently into the forecastle, and he has to stop waffling. He has to really commit himself to to his life uh, at sea, even though it's a temporary life. But he has to start to commit himself to that world and to that life, and to that culture of the forecastle. He can't try to. He's not in a position to be one who can kind of stand between the two. Right, passengers maybe can. They don't have to work, but you know. And we'll deal with passengers mostly in, in part three of this, where we deal with the immigrants, which are a little bit different than the passengers who are coming across to London. They're, they're people the captain will talk to and converse with. The, the large number of immigrants who filled the ship on the way back are, are kind of a different, different batch. And from this point on until we get to Liverpool, which, where is it? It's, it's going to be like chapter... 29 or something well into my next episode I'll, I'll start to cover the time in Liverpool but it's there's a few events that happen like there's a, a moment where he steps up and he goes to to loose the main sail and that's kind of a breakthrough for him where he's finally doing some important work and not just scrubbing the decks and, and keeping the watch he starts to learn more skills and do more things and it's kind of a gradual process and Melville documents it point by point but he intersperses this with with sometimes interesting conversations about just the life of sailors and, and what they face and, and what they go through. And the first one of these we get is like about his own clothing and how the clothing he bought back in New York doesn't hold together very well and the kind of the wear and tear in his clothing from from life and work at the sea is described. And and the, the lesson here is simply you gotta be prepared if you want to go to sea and that he wasn't he wasn't very prepared at all. We were introduced to the to the cook and the steward. Now, in in what I've read, and, and I've actually read log books because I I've done some research on like the Pacific trade. Often the cooks and and stewards of the ships, the people who kind of ran the food service, were often black, and that's the case with the ship as well, where where the cook and the the steward are are African American. It's a well, the, the, I think the cook was black. Thompson, the steward, is just described as, as a mulatto. Um, but, you know, they're, they're positions of, of some authority and power and, and significance on, on the ship. He does find, though, it's very difficult to, to kind of engage in intellectual activities on, on the ship. He's, no, he hasn't been at sea long enough to be kind of get into the storytelling part of it, something that the older seamen seem to have a be very good at and, and kind of a craft they've cultivated. He doesn't really have that yet, but he's, he knows how to, you know, he's got this literary background so he can kind of talk about books and he tries to reach out to a sailor or two on the issue, on books and on reading and the, the response he gets is kind of indifferent and, and he's rather depressed by that, but he, he realizes that it's, he's, it's not really going to be his fate to to really pursue an academic life at sea. That's, it's again, that's it's another piece of evidence that he's kind of waffling. He's not, he's still not fully maybe embracing life, life in the forecastle, right? And, and all that entails, right? Even the, the nature of how they tell stories and consume stories, right? It's oral, it's an oral culture on the ship, not really a literal one. And now we think about like these, how these missionaries would try to like dump Bibles onto sailors, right? And they had lending libraries and ports where sailors could borrow a book in one port and drop it off in another. 
they, they tried these kinds of things and they're trying to really push religious literature, but you can really get a sense here how futile that would be that these theos weren't really going to spend their time time reading. And I, I guess that's that's all I want to say about the first third of, of, of Redburn. It's, it's a really a great read. I, I think this book really holds up and it's it's really got some brilliant moments. It's, it's, I guess it's not as, for me, as kind of sexy as Moby Dick or Typey or Omu. I, I, I like Omu so thematically. I, I love that story so much. Just what it talks about, you know, kind of this fluid labor market. But, you know, I think this, this story, in, on my, this is, I guess, my third or fourth reread of it in my life. It, I'm really coming to like it more and more, and it's it's growing on me more. And you really, there's really some great moments where Melville's at the peak of his literary power. Um, when he's like, I think when he's talking about Jack, describing Jackson as one of those moments, or even some of the descriptions of of just like the scenery at sea and what it's like, you know, out there in the water, are really wonderful as well. So um, that, but that does it for for this episode. I think next time I will look at next second hundred pages now there's still some more stuff to talk about his time giving getting to liverpool but the bulk of of the next episode will will cover what happens to him uh, at at port what he observes while he's in port and then maybe we'll get to his little side quest to to london so anyways um if you've read redburn and have your own thoughts about this please leave your comments below as well as um any thoughts or questions you may have for me any recommendations about future series um, please let me know uh, you can also email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com um, but as always thanks for listening and I'll see you next time with part two of my thoughts on, on Redburn His First Voyage by Herman Melville At last there came a Yankee skipper away Flipper